Welcome to the second season of Crime Beat. I'm so happy to announce we have a new sponsor, the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. I've seen shows there several times, and it's a great night out. They have a new play, Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical. There will be more details and a discount code later in this episode. So thank you to the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. And here's Crime Beat. Some of the descriptions, details, and language in this podcast may not be suitable for all audiences. The killer carried a knife. We know now, all these years later, the murder weapon looked like a Slim Jim, the kind of long blade that you could use to break into cars. It may have been a tool used to make furniture. We just don't know for sure. The killer must have had it stuffed under his shirt or in his sock along his calf, because when he got in the car, she couldn't have known it was there. He probably punched her first to try to shut her up. Then, as the rage rose inside him, the knife came out. It looks like he stabbed her first in the left thigh, and then once in the back. There are so many stab wounds, the order is impossible to discern. She kicked him. In her fury to escape, she broke part of her car's plastic center console. She kicked so hard she lost her shoe. Her name was Kathy Torres. She was 20 years old. She popped open her car door and tried to run, but he caught her before she could take more than a few steps. Over the next 10 minutes, he hacked her to death. Some of the cuts were so deep that her wrist was nearly severed. So I don't believe that he met her that night to kill her. Um, once it started, did he did, did he intend to kill her? Absolutely. 74 plus stab wounds. How do you not? 74? Plus. It was 74 that the coroner could count. Wow. That's a rage. That's rage. That's me talking with Darren Wyatt, the cop who knows more about the Kathy Torres murder case than any living soul. Darren is a stocky guy with more hair in his mustache than he has on his head. He looks like a 1950s football coach, but when you get to know him, there's a kindness behind his stern demeanor. Decades ago, Darren made a pledge to Kathy's mother, Mary Bennett. Listen for the cracks in his voice as he explains. In December of 1997, my first daughter was born. Well, my, my only daughter, but my first kid was born. Uh, and I remember going to Mary very shortly after that. And I know. That was the first, is having that uh, realization of having that love for a child. And telling her, I, the only thing I can do is I can promise you that I'll do everything in my power. I can't promise you that I'll solve it, but I promise you I'll do everything that I can to try. Um, and it was just that connection of, of now having a kid uh, that was um, crucially important. I mean, before... Yeah, it's a huge responsibility to investigate the death of another person. I'm Keith Sharon, a reporter with the Southern California News Group. In 1994, Kathy Torres, a student at Cal State Fullerton, never came home after working a Saturday night shift in the photo department at Savon. In this podcast, I'm going to look at just how cold a case can get. I'm going to tell you about Mary Bennett, her family, Darren Wyatt, and their extraordinary two-plus-decade pursuit of justice. This is Crime Beat, Season 2, Episode 1, Across the Street.
I drove out to Walnut Street in Placentia, California. I parked my car just to sit and imagine how it must have been 25 years ago. My mind conjured up an image. It's one I can't get out of my head. It's the image of a woman, a mother. She's aging, like Oscar Wilde's picture of Dorian Gray. First, she's in her 40s, and then her 50s, and then older than that. Dark, short hair becomes salt and pepper gray, always parted on the side. She's always wearing the same oval glasses. She's standing at a window, a kitchen window, in the little Spanish-style house where she once had a happy life. Arms crossed, expressionless, as still as a gargoyle, watching. The curtains are wide open. She is visible from the street, and that's the point. Her framed image was there almost every day. For years, the mother was in the window, unrelenting. Across Walnut Street, another image. That image is aging, too. It's the image of a man, a suspected killer. I think about that part in The Lovely Bones where Alice Siebold wrote, Murderers are not monsters. They're men. And that's the most frightening thing about them. This man is in his 20s, and then his 30s, and then older than that. The man opened the front door of the tiny bungalow where he lived since he was a child. He was on his way to work, or to run an errand, or to go to dinner with his wife and daughter, or to head out for beers with his buddies. He grew thinner after Kathy Torres disappeared. The sliver of beard was gone. Gone, too, was the mustache. He was able to exist this way, living freely across the street, because of four powerful words in the American system of jurisprudence. Innocent until proven guilty. He often wore a baseball cap pulled low on his forehead. He was careful not to look across the street. He was careful not to look at the mother in the window. He always hurried to his white Ford truck and rolled away. The mother's name was Mary. After Kathy died, there were people who told Mary to sell her house, move away, start over. Mary chose to stay. She chose to dedicate her life to tormenting the man across the street, to forcing justice to rain down upon him. The suspected killer's DNA was not found at the crime scene. Neither was the murder weapon. It was decades before investigators even discovered where the crime scene was. And his alibi, which she always considered a load of crap, has never convinced Mary Bennett. So they lived for years and years and years, both of them. Mother and suspected murderer, separated only by the street in front of their homes, about 30 feet of asphalt. What was it like to see that he had a life? It was hard. It was hard because, because of what, he, what I believe he had done, you know. It was hard, but still, but I, think, I think my, if you want to call it at that point, my anger of making him uncomfortable by my yeah. presence, then it was worth it. Your life was like, that was your role. Yeah, that my role. And do you think it worked? you think he was uncomfortable? I don't know. I've never asked him. <laughs> but he never looked at me. I asked Mary more than once about what it was like to watch the man across the street. Sometimes 
she would see him drive away, and she would get in her car and follow him just to let him know she was there. I just wanted to, to watch him, to see him, because I was hoping and praying that maybe he would come forth and talk to me. I wanted him, I wanted him to face me, to, to tell me, to tell me something. You know, and, and that never happened. He never looked at me. And you wanted him to feel uncomfortable. I wanted him to feel uncomfortable and either get mad and come across the street or come and tell me, hey, listen, I'm sorry, I didn't do it. But he didn't. Right. And you kept doing that. I kept doing it because I had to. There's, there's You changed the person I was before February of 94 was no longer the same person. Right. I was on a mission. I was on a mission and I had to do everything that I could, everything, any idea that popped into my head. I had to try because I know, I learned that the law, it, it's written in black and white and there's no in between. If you don't have, even if you have suspicion, you cannot act on it. You have to have hardcore evidence. In this podcast, I'm going to tell you how the case fell through the cracks, about the polygraph tests and the DNA mistakes and the arterial spurt and the jaw-dropping surprises no one has ever reported. I'll tell you about the four men, you heard that right, four men who police tried to nail in connection with this homicide. I'll tell you what a good person Kathy was, holding two jobs while she attended college. She wanted to get her degree in social work, so she could help families like the kind she saw in her own immigrant neighborhood. When you look at Kathy's smiling pictures from those days, you see what her mother remembers. Hoop earrings, high cheekbones, and happiness. You see those radiant eyes. So here's the question. What should a mother do when Darren Wyatt and police investigators compile as much evidence as they can and they can't convince a district attorney to file charges? What happened to Kathy Torres and then her family made me think about the phrase, burden of proof. When you're the police and the prosecutor trying to arrest and convict a killer, the burden of proof is yours. But how much of a burden should that task be? How much proof is enough? And why does it seem the burden always falls on the family of the victim? Mary Bennett, her maiden name was Valencia, grew up in a neighborhood where Santa Ana met Garden Grove. She graduated from Santiago High School in 1966. And if I would have met you at that time, 66, what would you have told me you're going to be when you grow up? The truth? (laughs) Yeah. See, I I grew up at a time when I was... When you were recording this, though. Yeah. Okay, when... when, um, even in high school, being Latina, you weren't going to go very far. Mm-hmm. So you were basically told by counselors that uh, uh, um, home, uh, the one where you learned cooking, home, home, home economics. economics. Yes, and the sewing classes were something that one should take. Encur- they encouraged us to take those. To get you ready to be a wife. A wife. And did you like that, or did you have bigger dreams? Well, I would have liked to have uh, gone on to do something, mm-hmm. you know, 
because I always, my dream was always to be able to go see what was on the other side of the mountain, so to speak, mm -hmm. to go to New York, to go, go, you know, go and see other things other than where you, the, where you grew up, where you were. Mary didn't go to college. She got married in 1970 to a good, solid man named Martin Torres. He worked in a carpet factory in Anaheim. He had relatives in Placentia, so that's where he and Mary started their family. I didn't even know Placentia existed, believe it or not. But we moved. <laughs> it's kind of remote. It's kind of out here a little ways. Well, you know, uh, back in 71, it was really different. Right. It was different, so we moved, uh, uh, lived in, in Placentia. Mary didn't go to New York. She went to Placentia. The City of Placentia website says its name derives from Latin for pleasant place to live. The area began becoming populated in the early 1900s when a train station was built there. It's 30 miles south of Los Angeles in North Orange County. The citrus industry sprouted there first along with walnuts and avocados. And then Placentia began to attract the men and women who worked in the fields and in the packing houses. Placentia was officially incorporated as a city in 1926. By 1960, the population was about 5,000. By 1970, it had grown to 25,000. It was almost 50,000 in the 2000 census. The growth of the nearby college, Cal State Fullerton, which was founded as Orange County State College in 1957, contributed to the rise of the population. Placentia's crime rate was in the upper third of Orange County's 34 incorporated cities. But there's one statistic in Placentia that stood out to me. While the Kathy Torres case was being investigated, the previous eight murder cases in Placentia had gone unsolved. Why, why did you move? What was, uh, what was the attraction? Well, because he wanted to move. He had a lot of uh, family members that lived in Placentia. Okay. And so he wanted to move to Placentia, so I went along. She went along. Mary and Martin Torres lived a blue-collar life. She worked in the lab at Arnold Engineering using a microscope to check parts on electronic circuit boards. Later, she got a job at United Can, putting lids on the cans of Hunt's tomato sauce. The Hunt's factory was next door. Martin worked at the Ozite carpet plant. When Ozite closed up shop suddenly, Martin found himself out of work. His family ran into tough financial times. If I can tell you one thing about Mary, she was determined her kids were not going to be like her. They were not going to go along. Here's the special Matilda discount. Buy one Matilda ticket, get one free. Enter promo code HONEYBOGO, H-O-N-E-Y-B-O-G-O. You must enter the code before selecting your seats. Don't miss the Tony Award-winning musical, Matilda. Packed with high-energy dance numbers, catchy songs, and a gifted young actress. Matilda, October 25th through November 17th. Tickets at LaMaradaTheater.com. Between 1970 and 1981, Mary had four children. Tina was born in 71, Kathy in 73, Marty Jr. in 74, and Debbie in 1980. They moved from one tiny house to another tiny house until they ended up on Walnut Street with an avocado tree in their yard. Today, in 2019, they don't live there anymore. I interviewed Mary and her two surviving daughters, Tina and Debbie, 
at Tina's dining room table in her home far away from Walnut Street. Tina didn't want me to reveal where she lives now. Tina grew up to be an elementary school teacher. Debbie got her law degree and became an attorney. As I sit across from them, I can see the bond formed by the tragedy they endured together. Tina is quicker to laugh. Mary is more guarded. Debbie is still shattered. There have been too many tears over too many years. It's hard to sit across from Mary and her girls without thinking of Kathy, without thinking of what they lost. Mary has not shied away from the details of Kathy's death. We've had long conversations about stab wounds and blood. She's seen the pictures the police collected, including those that she was advised she might not want to see. It was important for Mary to know how Kathy fought. It was important for Mary to know that Kathy kicked at her attacker so hard that she broke the center console of her car. It was important for Mary to know that her shoe came off. Investigators found some kind of oil stain on her sock, and that launched a wide search to find the source of that stain. It frustrates Mary to no end that they were never able to find the exact spot where her daughter was killed. She wants to know everything. I told Mary about the wounds on her hands and wrists. Kathy may have grabbed the whole blade of the knife in the palm of her hand. Police never found what must have been a vast amount of blood. Here's everything you need to know about Kathy Torres. She was stabbed 74 times, and when the stabbing was done, she wasn't dead. She was still fighting. She didn't die until she was stuffed in the trunk of her car. A bloody handprint suggested she beat on the roof of that trunk until all the life leaked out of her through the gaping hole in her neck. I'll get into the details of the crime in several upcoming episodes. It was so much easier for me to talk to Mary about happier times. Here are Tina and Mary talking about their lives in Placentia. Well, um, growing up on Walnut, um, we knew everybody, all yeah. of our neighbors, and we played outside, we came in when it got dark. Um, a lot of good memories of um, riding our bikes down the street, riding our roller, you know, riding around with our roller skates, playing handball outside, um, and always remembering that people came outside and talked. Yeah, neighbors, and, everybody, and knew. everybody knew each other. And so, like, if one of us fell and scraped a knee, um, and if it was the neighbor from the corner that saw she would come and tend to us mm -hmm. and somebody would by that time there was all the all the children around that neighborhood were around us so somebody would flag down you know the parent or the mom or my mom for example and um, it was just a different time it was a slow time mm -hmm. it was this you know growing up there in the 70s to the 80s it was just different we knew people who came in and people who left um, there were um, barbecues that we had, right. um, and it was at so and so's house, Lizzie's house, for example. Yeah. And we'd run, you know, everybody would get. My mom would start making something because they said, "Well, this afternoon we're going to throw some meat on the grill." And from that neighborhood, Mary dreamed that her children would rise up. I wanted my kids to get an education and be somebody. What I did. And, and where their father did, it was honest work. I wanted them to be able to work where they were able to dress nice and not get dirty. And I wanted better for them. I used to tell them, all I want is, I didn't mind working, but I want you guys to get an education. Right. To do something, be somebody. 
but also never forget who, who they were. If the Torres family had a star, it was Kathy. She was born June 4, 1973. Her father called her Prieta, the Spanish word for brown, which was the color of her skin. When she got older, everybody else called her Cat. Kathy, since she was born, there was something different about her. I believe Kathy was, she, she was special. She had a lot of energy. Um, she always was smiling. Um, she, I, I could hear her laughter. Mm -hmm. um, she was very loud. <laughs> um, you know, she loved to, even if in conversation, if something excited her, you would hear it in her voice because she raised her voice a lot and mm -hmm. we would always kind of tease her about that because um, we could hear her a mile away. And um, so she was expressive that way. She had a free spirit. Mm -hmm. um, she wasn't, um, she was very open and she um, always had people, or, you know, back growing up, uh, she had a group of friends and we all had friends in the neighborhood and we all knew each other and... She's two years younger than mm -hmm. you, okay? Mm -hmm. Is she like you? Um, no, 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 because Kathy, since she was a free spirit, she could let things go. You know, she wasn't bothered by this isn't a certain way. Uh, like you were. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and um, but that's how she was, where she was like, let it be. Kathy had a fun and adventurous side to her. Lifelong friend Maria Echeverria remembers they were about 12 years old when Kathy got this crazy idea. <laughs> and um, I remember she wanted to drive the car, the truck, and her dad, she got on the steering wheel and everything. She turned on the car. I don't think Mrs. Torres knows. And she she took off. How old? <laughs> we were young. We we're probably like in sixth grade. But we only she only went to the corner. She and, drove the truck? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Just to the corner. And her dad just started yelling at her, but he was laughing. <laughs> that was like the funniest because I never seen him ever get mad at her, but laughing. He would never yell at her. Kathy grew up just like Mary dreamed she would. Kathy was a standout in the classroom. Things came to her much more, very easy. I mean, that girl could, could uh, in, in, what was it, already in college when she could, or in high school, she could put a term paper together overnight. Right. She spread her stuff all over the floor. Were you a good student? Mm -hmm. Yes, but okay. not, but, not she, but she worked I harder, worked harder. Okay. and Kathy did not. The Torres family lived in a small house at the end of a cul-de-sac, where Chapman meets Walnut. A long fence protects the children playing on Walnut Street from the heavy traffic on Chapman. One of Kathy's friends on Walnut Street was a little boy named Albert Rangel. He was two years younger. Albert was smart, like Kathy. When they went to elementary school, they rode the bus together. There will be much more on Albert as this podcast goes along. He would play a major role in Kathy's life, especially in the weeks before her death. Across Walnut Street, that's where the Lopez family lived. I talked to some of the police officers who investigated this case, and they all described the Lopez property as a compound. They called it the Lopez compound, like it was an estate, like the Kennedy compound in Hyannis, Massachusetts. It was not a compound. In reality, it's six small bungalows behind cinder block fencing. All the Lopez houses were painted blue. I heard someone say it was like a twisted Smurf village. 
you could draw a straight line from the Torres driveway across the street to the Lopez driveway. The Lopez's had eight children. Most of them were older than the Torres children, so they didn't play together much. Only Marty Torres played with the younger Lopez boys. Well, I met them because my dad knew their dad. Mm-hmm. And so it was like the place where I'd go hang out. You know, they lifted weights and worked out. and The boys? So yeah, we'd hang out. i hang out with Mondo, the other brother Jerry. They'd always be working, and I'd just go. You know, I didn't do anything outside of go to school. My mom and my dad were... <laughs> That was the no-no, you know. What do you mean? You come home from school, you, you know, you work in the house or clean up, and so. But I could go hang out at the Lopez's. Mm-hmm. You, that was as far as the leash. Exactly, exactly. Because they knew them. Right. My mom knew them. My mom and my dad knew them. They knew their family. The families got even closer when Tina was at Valencia High School. She started getting romantically involved with Armando Lopez. You just heard Marty call him Mondo. Armando was already out of high school. He worked in a cabinet shop. Eventually, Tina and Armando would get married. But that's getting ahead of the story just a little bit. When Kathy Torres was a freshman at Valencia High School, she knew the rules about dating. Well, we couldn't, we didn't, we didn't, um, we didn't, even if we were in high school and if we were 15 or 16, we, we, we didn't date Anna. Yeah. We didn't no, go out on dates. No dates. No dates. No dates. If if, <laughs> so if, did you have to go to her and say, uh, Mom, I would like to date, and then she would go, nope. I wouldn't even ask, you because that's ask. not even a choice. It wasn't. That's not something we would even negotiate. There was no... And that was okay, because, because that's how it was. it was. I need to slow down here for just a second. Kathy Torres's short life had a time and a place. It's the late 1980s, early 1990s, a quarter century ago. The world was so different then. Mel Gibson and Robin Williams were mega superstars. Julia Roberts was in Pretty Woman. MC Hammer and Vanilla Ice were huge. It seems like so long ago. I'm listening to interviews police did with witnesses and suspects and they're talking about video rental stores and Sega video games. The kids communicated through pagers. There were phone booths and mixtapes and Beanie Babies. I'm watching old VHS tapes of police interviews. Remember the phrase, be kind, rewind? That's the period we're talking about. People actually wrote letters to each other. Cell phones were as big as bricks. People didn't yet understand the World Wide Web. By the time the girls were in high school, Mary's marriage was falling apart. She and Martin Torres divorced, and he moved to La Puente. Suddenly, Mary was a single mom with four kids. Mary, however, didn't soften the family rules. Did it force you underground? Did you uh, kind of have to figure out a way to do the dating thing on your own, or you just would never dare? In high school, we just we followed the rules. I mean, Fun. that was what we did. Okay. And if we it was better to go out with girls and have friends that you went out with than to go out and and do something that would, because then you'd have to, at that time it was like, you know, then we'd have to face my mom and we didn't want to do that. Not because she was going to do something, you know, to us or anything like that. It was just, 
we had a conscience and it's like if you look at her she's gonna know <laughs> so right. why even try it but then we were on you know she knew if we were going to go to the movies with our gr yeah. with the friends that we had right. girlfriends and she would tell us okay just make sure you're home by this time and we did right and Kathy did the same thing too be I mean it was it was a different time right and we were working too so any like so there wasn't a lot of time to right. mess around with boys right and then also keeping up your grades because my mom said that was one thing if if grades ever suffered then you know did, she was did, gonna... grade, did grades ever suffer no no well not you for... ran a tight ship well I tried <laughs> but you know what she instilled in us that was something that she didn't have to check on us to mm -hmm. see like I know nowadays parents can check online to see mm -hmm. how their student how their children are, are at different levels and she didn't have to check on us because it was we were all working for the same thing she was supporting us right and providing for us the best way she could so why not do what we're supposed to do because at the end all end all who's it going to you know we're we're all helping each other in 1991 when kathy was 17 she applied for a part-time job at Savon, which was only about a mile away from her home on a Savon employees website general manager russ deuce wrote about kathy torres Russ wrote, I knew there was always a way we could work an outstanding candidate into our store operation. Kathy was going to school at the time and needed part-time hours. As I took her around to meet some of our other associates, I could not help but notice how eager and pleasant she was to meet the other associates. She made an impression on each person to the point that several people had asked if I was going to hire her and I would be foolish not to." End quote. He didn't have an opening, but he hired her anyway. Kathy worked in the photo department. Russ said she never called in sick and never asked for time off. I have to interject here. Quick story about Kathy's dedication and commitment. There was an incident that happened on February 5th, 1994, a week before she died, when Kathy may have been slipped a date rape drug. She blacked out and told her mother she had no memory of what happened that night. When she came home, her panties were missing, and she had no explanation for where they were. You're going to hear all the details about that incident. But here's the point I'm trying to make. Mary Bennett's daughter, the morning after she may have been drugged and raped, woke up and went to work at Savon. Kathy Torres was driven. She was a hard-charging student ready for college. She was in the Spanish club. She played the clarinet. She was in a club called Mesa. Mathematics, Engineering, Science, Achievement. She was her class representative in student government. She was in the Emerging Leaders Program at Cal State Fullerton. She had a second job teaching English to Spanish-speaking students. As her senior year came to an end, she was accepted at all three colleges to which she applied, USC, Loyola Marymount, and Cal State Fullerton. She chose Fullerton so she could help her mother. At Fullerton, she could live at home and keep costs down. Kathy saved enough money to buy a used car, a burgundy Toyota Corolla. She liked the color, burgundy. Her legs were so short, she had to move the seat all the way forward to drive it. The youngest member of the Torres family is Debbie, who was 13 years old when her sister disappeared. Debbie talks about her sister with reverence. To her, Kathy was a superhero. I always kind of felt like lucky, like, I'm the lucky one with the coolest sister. Right, because I've got the cool older sister. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah, so like if she picked me up at school, I always thought like, oh, I got the cool older sister, you know. Right. So, 
Yeah. Tell me about her personality. Very outgoing, um, but also very driven. Like, so she was very social, very popular, um, but also very driven. Like, you know, she had her own mindset about what she was going to do. And I just, sometimes she would pick me up at, after school. And if she had to go to a class, she'd take me with her to her class at Cal State Fullerton. So I, I remember feeling like I had been on the campus wow. kind of a lot. Like, I mean, it wasn't like a class, but it was like a study session or mm-hmm. something. And she's like, oh, just take a notebook and you can just sit down here and there wasn't that many people in the class but I remember she took me to campus like several times mm-hmm. um, and I kind of felt like oh this is cool you know this is you know as a junior higher obviously I was impressed by Cal State Fullerton. When Debbie did well in school Kathy recognized her achievements. When I was in uh, middle school I made like the honor roll and she She got home first and got my report card in. She left me a, just a, not a card, but just an envelope that on the outside said, congratulations on your GPA and left like $5 in it. Those are like things that, you know, you know, just, Normally, siblings don't do that, like watching out for your siblings. You know, what is that report card saying? That she was different in that way. She was checking those report cards. She opened the mail before anybody else got to the mail. Do you still have that? Yeah, I have the the note she gave me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've been looking into the background of Kathy Torres for several months. At the same time, I wonder what conclusions the journalists would have drawn from looking into my background during my high school and college years. In Kathy's life, there were some contradictions. She wasn't allowed to date, but she was very interested in several boys. The media, at the time of her disappearance, described her in almost angelic terms. In reality, she was more human than the quick descriptions made her out to be. There were flirtations with marijuana and alcohol. Kathy liked to go to house parties. She and her friends would cruise along Bristol Street in Santa Ana. More than once, she was on the fringe of danger. She went with friends to Pasadena, and as they drove, gang members on the corner started shooting at their car. That incident spooked her. Kathy's friends said she was interested in the boys who hung out in rough crowds. She liked a boy named Angel Gonzalez, who, at age 15, was gunned down in a gang altercation outside Fullerton High School. She liked a boy named Lawrence Garcia and another boy named Johnny Lil Slick Delgado. Both of them wound up in jail. Her choice of boys to dance with or to kiss doesn't change the way her family felt about her. It doesn't make her any less of a nice girl. She didn't deserve the fate that was coming. There was one particular boy who outlasted all the others. She had known him since she was 14 years old. He lived across the street. His name was Sam Lopez. Next time on Crime Beat Season 2, Mom vs. Murderer, Letters of Intent. Kathy Torres and Sam Lopez write to each other in the weeks and days before her murder. I'll share those letters with you. Crime Beat Season 2 was produced by the Southern California News Group. The executive editor was Frank Pine. The senior editor was Todd Harmonson. 
audio editing, mixing, and music by Kevin Sablon, field recording and videos by Jeff Gritchen, graphics by Kurt Snibby. And I want to give special thanks to podcasters who inspired this work, Amy Wilson and Amber Hunt on Accused, Sarah Koenig on Serial, Brian Reed on S-Town, Chris Gofford on Dirty John, Madeline Barron on In the Dark, Nate DeMeo on The Memory Palace, and Phoebe Judge on Criminal. The best way you can support this podcast is to give us high ratings, write great reviews, and tell your friends to check out our work. Also, you can listen to Crime Beat Season 1, Stealing Nixon's Millions. That story was the inspiration behind the 2019 movie Finding Steve McQueen, starring Forrest Whitaker, Travis Fimmel, Rachel Taylor, and William Fickner. Thanks for listening. Thank you again to our new sponsor, the La Mirada Theater for the Performing Arts. Remember, when you buy one Matilda ticket, you get one free by using promo code HONEYBOGO, H-O-N-E-Y-B-O-G-O. You must enter the code before selecting your seats.